I'm uh, glad for the opportunity to be here. Mark asked if uh, he could share that I was a graduate from Brigham Young, and I agreed on the understanding that some, some chapel time I'd have a chance to defend myself. And uh, so I, I look forward to that. Uh, we did, it, it was, God was very uh, gracious in giving me the opportunity to go there, and it is the case. We did start the first Baptist Student Union at Brigham Young University, and as far as I know, it is still going today on campus. We had all of three members. It wasn't hard to take role. Uh, it was a special time. Well, I'm the first installment uh, in a one-week chapel series by selected Master's College faculty. And the purpose of this series is to set before you the challenge that you as Master's College students will face this year from an academic perspective. We are entitling the series, The Heart of a Christian Scholar. It's our desire that by the time that every one of you sitting here today finishes your program at the Master's College, that you will have developed a lifelong commitment to the perspectives and character qualities that we will be describing over these next three chapel sessions. The faculty is committed to these qualities in their own individual lives, and it's our, um, our goal to uh, build them into your lives through our teaching, discipling, and modeling. For ease of note-taking and uh, following the lead of every good Bible teacher, we've divided the series into three topics, each conveniently beginning with the letter P. Today, I'll be talking to you about the uh, topic of a Christian scholar's perspective. On Wednesday, Dr. R.W. Mackey, who is the chairman of the business department, will be addressing the topic, the Christian scholar's pursuit. And then on Friday, Dr. Taylor Jones, chairman of the science department, will talk to you about the Christian scholar's purpose. Now, I need to tell you that I stand before you this morning with some level of fearfulness. I've not had many opportunities to speak to large groups. I don't have any pastoral or formal theological training outside my 16 units of religion courses at BYU. <laughs> my undergraduate major was mathematics and I minored in chemistry. I enjoy wrestling a five-page spreadsheet. I can do most of the statistical analysis on the uh, surveys that we inflict on you and I even feel a little bit comfortable above or below that uh, set of rings that we have over there. But uh, to stand in front of you today makes me very nervous. So I hope you'll bear with me as I share some things with you from my heart. Now, you may ask, why do we have a chapel series on Christian scholarship? Let me respond to that by saying that we live in a world that places a high value on knowledge and scholarly expertise. We are an information-based, service-oriented society. And if I were to put it to you in very blunt terms, I would say this. I believe that very few ignoramuses are going to be used in today's society to advance the kingdom in a significant way. I would point to three civilizations that are cited in Scripture to support this belief the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Greco-Roman Empire. Each of these civilizations parallel our current society 
in that they were intellectually sophisticated, but morally and spiritually clueless. When God wanted to move in a significant way to influence each of these cultures at the highest possible levels, who did he choose to do that? Moses, Daniel, and Paul. Each of these men were scholars. They were educated in the best scholarship that was available to them in their day. Each of them could stand and contend with the best scholarly or secular wise men that that environment, that society had to, to offer. Each one was used by God on a national and a worldwide basis in the courts of kings to advance the kingdom for the cause of Christ. Now, we have about 800 students at Master's College this semester, and it's our desire that God would send to us that group of students who are willing to commit uh, themselves to using their talents and gifts that God has given them, their time and the energy of their lives to make a difference for the kingdom of Christ in the broadest possible circle of influence that God would make available to them. That is the heart's desire of the faculty. Before I get into my uh, specific comments relating to the perspective of a Christian scholar, let me give you two uh, points that relate somewhat in introductory fashion to the series as a whole. First of all, I would like to graphically illustrate for you how special of a privilege it is that God is allowing you to be at Master's College this year. First, um, you need to know that only about 15% of all adult people 25 years or older in the United States have any type of four-year degree, any type of bachelor's degree. 15%, that's less than one in six adults, have a bachelor's degree in our adults have a bachelor's degree in our country. Now, in the United States, there are 27 million young people in your age bracket, 18 to 24 year old, uh, years old. If we illustrate that with this circle here, then of those 27 million, about 12.3 million of them are enrolled in some type of college. This is about 45% of that 27 million. However, only about 222,000 of that 27 million are attending any type of evangelical Christian college. That equals less than 1%. That is 8 tenths of 1% of all college-age young people have an opportunity or have made a choice to go to an evangelical Christian college. That's eight in a thousand. You are a part of a very select group, and I hope that you will value that privilege that God's given to you. Let me uh, deal with just a second introductory point, and that is to introduce you very quickly to Master's College faculty. This is a very special group of individuals. There are 35 full-time teaching faculty uh, on our campus in our 12 academic departments. If you have good eyesight, you can read their names here. There, in addition, there are six other individuals who work here full-time and have a mixture of administrative and teaching duties. 
Now, here's a graph that shows the distribution of their ages, uh, of faculty ages. The average age of our faculty is about 48 years old. The youngest is 25, and the oldest is 65. I won't tell you who either who has either of those distinctions. Now, this next graph shows you a little bit of a breakdown in terms of experience at Master's College. Average faculty member has 10 and a half years of experience teaching here at the college. We have two faculty members who are joining us uh, this year. This is their first year at the college. One is Dr. William Varner. He is the IBEX program coordinator here on our campus and a professor in our Bible department. And then the second is Professor Josh C. And he is in the electronic media emphasis of the communications major. Our three longest standing faculty are Dr. John Stead, who's starting his 27th year at the college. <laughs> Professor John Hotchkiss, who you saw last week giving announcements, he's starting our tw his 28th year here at the school. And Dr. George Howe, who is starting his 29th year at Master's College. Now, the next graph shows the breakdown of our 35 faculty members by degree level. All but one of our faculty have some type of an advanced degree, and almost 70% of them are at the doctoral degree level. Now, finally, uh, here is a sampling of the local church-related ministries that our faculty are involved in. This represents involvement in some 15 local area churches. Now, while we as a faculty firmly believe that what we're doing here on Masters College campus is an important ministry for God, we realize that it is the church that God has established as the primary vehicle for advancing his kingdom. And because of that, it is important for us as faculty, as his servants, to be involved in local church ministry. And not just to be satisfied with our teaching responsibility here on campus to satisfy or as the sum total of our spiritual service for him. Now, having said that in way of introduction, uh, let me turn to my assigned topic for the morning, the Christian scholar's perspective. And I'm going to be sharing this uh, in, in built around four specific points. Uh, I want to challenge you to integrate these uh, uh, points, these perspectives in your own life. I'll label them, these four heart attitudes as follows. A Christian scholar's perspective must include a regenerated heart, a heart for truth, the heart of a learner, and a heart of purpose. Let me expand on each of these four perspectives of a Christian scholar. First of all, a regenerated heart. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term lave is translated heart. In our modern day, we think of the heart as the base of our emotions. However, the Jews would use the term mind, or this term to refer to the mind or the seat of intellect, 
they would use the term bowels if they wanted to talk about the seat of the emotions. What I'm trying to get at when I use this term, a regenerated heart, is that I believe a Christian scholar's perspective needs to be one that possesses a distinctly Christian worldview. A Christian worldview is something like a mental sieve through which individuals filter all of the information and events of life. It is the case that every believer possesses a Christian worldview in some measure. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. John 16.13 says that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is to lead us into all truth. However, if you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, you realize that we have some part to play in this process of the renewing of the, or the being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, the difference between your average Christian and your Christian scholar in this regard is um, somewhat as follows. The average Christian more or less will hold to a Christian worldview as a consequence of his attendance at church, his upbringing, and things like that. A Christian scholar not only holds to his, uh, not only holds a Christian worldview, but can clearly, <coughs> thoughtfully, and systematically articulate what that view is and how it impacts his assessment of any current societal issue. If I were to express this in military terms, I'd say it this way. An average Christian has a defensive structure in which he can retreat to hide to avoid being slain by the enemy. That's what his Christian worldview is. The Christian scholar, instead, holds a, a well-thought-through Christian view that he can use as an offensive weapon to press the battle against the powers of darkness. That's the difference. Now, you see that out of an individual's worldview flow his response to the issues and situations of life. You will remember in Proverbs 4, verse 23, it says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Now, out of the cumulative worldviews of the individuals within a society, the laws and values of that society are formed. Now, the strong Christian influence that this country um, uh, benefited from in its early years to help shape the constitution and moral climate that was available during the colonial days is no longer present in our society. We are not a homogeneous Christian worldview-based society. We are a heterogeneous worldview society. One of the most prevalent worldviews in our society today is that of humanism. Do you know much about humanism? Some of you have studied it in your classes. The Humanist Manifesto is the basic document which uh, defines the major tenets of the humanist religion, although they don't call it a religion. In this document, it clearly establishes that humanists, if they are true to their creed, are atheists. The Manifesto makes several patronizing statements to 
traditional religious beliefs. But then it goes on to make a very clear statement that man must look solely to himself for salvation. There is no higher power upon which he can rely for his redemption. Humanists are clearly atheists. Francis Schaeffer has summarized the epitome of humanism in this statement. In humanism, man is the measure of all things. Now, the consequence of this is that the prime determiner of right and wrong in our society is the general good of society. Nothing beyond that. It's purely situational. Now, you probably had, or you will have, I'm sure, better explanations of the humanist philosophy in your philosophy in your religion classes, your Bible classes here on campus. Why do I bring this up and why do we make such a point of it? Well, the point I'm trying to make is that a person's worldview and the views of the people within a society will play themselves out in very practical ways in daily life. Let me give you two brief examples. First of all, uh, I would say the prevalent or dominating worldview that's held by the government of California, and in particular in the Department of Education for the state of California, is a humanist worldview. The, the Department of Education for the state of California defines the curriculum, the scope and sequence that will be used and taught in all schools, public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade in the state. They have a humanist mindset. And as a consequence, when they deal with the issue, they come to the issue of creation. They have mandated that creation may not be taught at all in the context of the, the, the subject area of science. If it is dealt with, it can only be dealt with in the context of social science. This is a practical implication of the working out of that humanist worldview. Another example of how our worldview works out in day-to-day way we respond to situations, uh, I've been interested as I listen to the radio and watch the TV news reports over the last five, eight years to see what society's response is to major crises. Have you noticed that? Suppose you have a sniper that comes in onto an elementary school campus and starts shooting and shoots and kills several of the young people. What is the school system's response to help counsel these young people to deal with the emotional trauma that they're suffering as a result of this attack? Who do they call in? Do they call in pastoral help? No, they call in the psychologist. See, because the humanist religion has excluded the possibility of any higher power to help deal with the really tough situations of life. And so all they can turn to is a psychologist to deal with crises. And you know, when you get down to it, at the times of ultimate crisis, humanists are really at a loss. Their religion doesn't work at these times. Our entire entertainment and mass media industry also is reflective of this world view. Last year, 19 point, or excuse me, 1992, 19.3 billion dollars 
was spent in the production of motion pictures in America. Now let me ask you, how much of that $19.3 billion was spent on producing movies that would be supportive of what we believe as Christians in terms of our worldview, our sense of right and wrong, or I should better say it, it's not ours, it's what God defines in the scripture as right and wrong. I'd say virtually none of that money went to those types of things. The great majority of the money went to producing films that would implicitly or explicitly tear down and contradict what scripture would teach. I would challenge you as Christian scholars to have a regenerated heart, to develop and be able to clearly articulate a Christian worldview in order to avoid getting sucked in to the overwhelming current in today's humanistic society. That's my first point. Let's go on to the second point. A Christian scholar should have a regenerated heart. He should have a heart for truth. Over the past 100 years, Satan has worked very hard to cultivate the concept that Christians are anti-intellectual. Christians are afraid of science because science contradicts their beliefs. Christians mainly deal in the realm of the emotions. The world would have us uh, would believe that in every evangelical church there is a room off to the side of the foyer which has a sign over it which says, please check your brains here before entering the auditorium. Let me tell you that that in fact of history is just opposite from what is true. From the time of the Renaissance and Reformation all the way through the time of Darwin and beyond up to this current day, it is the case that the Christian community has been a major force in the advancement of science, not an inhibitor of science, an advancer of science. Let me give you a few examples. In the 1600s, there was a, a, a believer that made significant contribution. You may be familiar with him. His name was Blase Pascal. You ever heard of him? A famous mathematician and philosopher. He was the one that uh, uh, put forth Pascal's wager. You may be familiar with that. Later in the 1700s, another example is Linnaeus. He was the father of our modern taxonomic system under which all animal and plant life is scientifically categorized. Third example, you may be familiar with this name, Michael Faraday. He lived during the early 1800s. He was the first scientist to perform major experiments in the area of electricity and electromagnetism. The principles that he discovered and documented form the basis of all modern-day motors and electronic generators. He was the one that defined those and discovered those. The Royal Society of London was formed in the mid-1600s. This was the first scientific society ever formed. Ninety percent of the members, the original membership in the, the, the Royal Society of London were either Puritans or Puritan sympathizers. 
the charter of the society declared that the purpose of scientific work should be to the glory of God the creator and the advantage of the human race. Christians have historically been at the front of advancing science, not ones that would inhibit it, contrary to what the world would have us believe. In John uh, 14.6, you're familiar with this verse, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth. Because the Christian's highest loyalty is to God, he must have a supreme absolute commitment to the pursuit and understanding of truth. This is paramount. In fact, the believer's pursuit of truth is so important that one of the ministries, the offices of the indwelling Holy Spirit is to lead us into all truth. That's talked about in John 16:13. In 2 John verse 4, John writes, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth. Now, we rightly understand that these verses in John and 2 John have their first reference primarily to the spiritual realm. But I think it would be wrong to limit them to that realm alone. Frank Gableine said, All truth is God's truth. Whether we're dealing with the eternal truth that God is light, or whether we're dealing with the the truth defined by the Krebs cycle in the process of photosynthesis in biology, if it is truth in any discipline or subject matter, it has its source in God. Well, what does this mean for the Christian scholar? Two things. First of all, the Christian scholar has a mandate, a command to pursue truth in his subject field. It is not unspiritual to be an expert in your academic field. In fact, it's a great testimony to the unsaved that challenges their stereotypic views of a Christian. It's ungodly to prize ignorance or even to be ambivalent to the pursuit of truth. The second implication of this is that a believer can in good conscience ask for God's assistance and the Holy Spirit's help in leading him into a correct understanding of truth in his subject area. Let me give you some historical examples. The great Southern scientist George Washington Carver would go on a regular basis. He'd retreat to the woods in the morning and there he would plead with God to help him understand and discover uses for the peanut. The peanut was a crop which could save the southern states from agricultural ruin. As a consequence of his work, over there were hundreds, he discovered hundreds of uses for the peanut. And that, I believe, was a result of God's answer to his, his request. Some of you are familiar, I'm, most of you are familiar with the, the um, Gutenberg, uh, and he was the inventor of the first uh, movable type. He was the inventor of the modern printing press. Well, his invention of the printing press was a direct result of his pleading with God to show him a method for printing things in mass quantities so that he could mass produce the scriptures. Let me share with you just a brief personal example. 
Before I came to Master's College 15 years ago, I worked at a company called Courseware. Uh, we were a consulting company, and we would work with a wide range of clients, including the United States Navy, the Air Force, IBM, Prudential, clients like that. What we would do is we would go into their business area and we would help them develop training and training systems. To do this, we had to get to know their subject matter field so that we could understand it, analyze it, and develop training which was logical and would be effective. In, in working in this business, we had to analyze and get a handle on a wide range of subject areas. Everything from uh, analyzing uh, acoustic signatures generated by submarines to tactics for how to use magnetic anomaly detection to how to upset a person's homeostasis so you could sell them on IBM word processor to how to appraise skyscrapers in downtown in Manhattan. These were just some of the things that we had to, we had to learn. Uh, one, one, uh, in working with Prudential, we worked with a group of men that, that they only got involved in appraisals and property acquisition if the, if the value of that property was a million and a half or more. They, they considered anything under a million and a half being small potatoes. They didn't even deal with it. Um, they, were, they were working on a deal at the time. We worked with them to acquire. What you do is you go over and you lean on it, and you'll know. Now, trying to, tr to somehow put that into training terms was pretty tough, but that's the kind of people we worked with. I can tell you from my, my own personal experience that I found that being a quick study in their subject field, learning their content in an efficient way was one of the best ways that I had to gain their respect as a professional and to develop a professional friendship with them. And that friendship very often opened the door so that I could share my personal testimony. Well, to summarize what we've done so far, a Christian scholar's perspective must, first of all, have a regenerated heart. He must have a heart for truth. And then third, he must have the heart of a learner. If a Christian scholar pursues and prizes and defends the truth, then it's a necessary prerequisite that he must have the heart of a learner. A Christian scholar understands that he will only come to a full understanding of truth when he stands before Christ at the doorway of eternity. Short of that, he must always be a learner. Now, Dr. Mackey will be talking about uh, some aspects of this point on Wednesday. And so I, I, will just, I will just make two points somewhat briefly. I believe that in order to be a learner, there are two requirements. To be an effective, lifelong learner, you must have one desire and two skills. Let me comment on each of those prerequisites. First, uh, an effective learner must have desire. A scholar must cultivate a sense of natural curiosity. A person who believes that he has, he has arrived at full knowledge will not continue to press along the path of learning. 
Now, we know from scriptural accounts that Solomon was the wisest man ever to live. In 1 Kings 4, 29 and 33, here's what we read. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. He was a scholar. Now, as a result of his natural curiosity in this wide range of fields, we can see his wisdom portrayed in the Proverbs. One example of that is in Proverbs 6.6, where he challenges the lazy. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. I'm sure that that advice that he gave to the lazy person came as a result of his own direct personal observation. He had a sense of curiosity. What are the nutrients that um, feed the flower of natural curiosity? I think there are three. Observation, experimentation, and reflection. Observation, experimentation, and reflection. When we use the term natural curiosity, it implies it's something we have naturally, something that we are born with. If you spend some time watching children, you will get a good idea of what we mean by the idea of natural curiosity. Have you, they demonstrate natural curiosity in a wonderful way. Now, what are the greatest killers to natural curiosity in our society today? I think there are a number. Let me comment on two. One killer to natural curiosity is our rapid activity-filled uh, life-paced schedule. One of the nutrients that, that, that helps curiosity to grow is reflection. In our society today, reflection is a very scarce commodity. When we put the term reflection into a biblical context, we use the term meditation you know how important of a value Scripture places on the concept of meditation. But how much time do we take for meditation? I've been working through the Psalms for the last about six, eight months in my personal devotions in the morning. And I have to tell you, the biggest, the biggest trial I fight is the feeling of guiltiness if I just sit there and I read the psalm, and I just sit and think about it. I mean, my pencil is out, and I've got, it. I've got to be writing something or it doesn't count. It's hard for us to just sit and reflect in our society today. A second killer of natural curiosity is television. Now, Dr. Mackey will probably be saying more about this, and so I just want to say this one thing. Do you remember the first day you arrived on campus for WOW, whether it was this year or one of the previous years? And during the afternoon, you sat in this room here and you took a survey. Remember that? That survey was called the UCLA Cooperative Institutional Research Program, CIRP CHIRP. And it has been, uh, it is an extremely large national survey that has been conducted for the past 20 plus years. 
Last year I was in a workshop at UCLA, a three-day seminar, learning how to analyze those results. And we were meeting with the head guru of the CHIRP survey, Sandy Aston. And we asked him, could you tell us from your 20-plus years of experience with this national survey of freshman population in America, what factors most clearly influence uh, students in terms of their uh, background and upbringing and they correlate most strongly and positively with their college experience. And he shared some ideas with us. For example, he said, well, it seems that number of hours per week spent in study tends to correlate positively with good grades. Now, that was really elegant. Uh, most of the things he said were pretty tentative in their nature because there are so many causes and effects that are masked by other factors. But then he became very animated, and he said, there is, however, there is one factor which consistently correlates negatively with every positive outcome that we associate with the college experience. What's that factor? Hours per week watching television. The point I'm trying to make is a Christian scholar must have a learner's heart. They must, must have a natural curiosity. This is a necessary ingredient. The necessary ingredient is that curiosity. The second important ingredient is that of skill. To be a learner, we want you to be a skilled learner. Just short of our goal as a faculty to develop in you a Christian worldview and a heart that's committed to advancing the kingdom is to prepare you with the skills that will equip you to be lifelong learners. Well, what are some of those basic educational skills? My time's running out. Let me just list three of them for you. One, you have to be an effective reader. Have to be an effective reader. Two, you need to have an ability to logically analyze and critically evaluate information and situations. These are some of the things that we tried to build into our general education courses so that you will have repeated practice developing those skills. And then the third one that I would give you, and that is have the ability to effectively and efficiently harvest information from a wide range of resources. Let me illustrate that. The body of documented knowledge available in our world today is increasing at a staggering rate, beyond exponential. It is impossible for anybody to be a Renaissance man in our world today. In fact, it's even impossible for you to stay current with all the latest discoveries and findings in a narrow technical field. Let me illustrate. If we took all of the information that was discovered and documented from the dawn of time up to the year 1750, and we use that as our base unit of measure of information, that, that body of information from the dawn of time to 1750 doubled between 1750 and the year 1900, 150 years. That base doubled between 1750 and 1900. Now, if we look at that entire span of information up till 1900, 
that amount of information doubled between 1900 and 1950. 50 years. That entire span of information, of documented knowledge, doubled between 1950 and 1960, 10 years. It doubled again in 1965, five years. And it's been doubling every five years since then. It's estimated that by the year 2020, the entire body of documented knowledge that is available to us will double every 73 days. By the year 2000, 97% of all knowledge that is documented will have been discovered during your lifetimes. It is impossible to, for you to know all that you need to know. What you know is still important, but even more important is for you to know uh, where you can get information when you need it. That is a life skill of a lifelong learner. Well, let me go to my last point because we're running out of time. Uh, a Christian scholar has to have a perspective that includes a regenerated heart, a heart for truth, the heart of a learner, and the last thing is a heart of purpose. A Christian scholar clearly understands that God is his creator, his sovereign ruler, and his redeemer, that he has been brought, bought with a price, and he mu that he must glorify God in his body that God through the Holy Spirit has baptized him into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit has sealed him and gifted him for spiritual service and that God has reserved for him an eternal inheritance in heaven that will not fade, spoil, or perish. He understands that he has been called to stewardship of his natural talents and his spiritual gifts for the purpose of advancing Christ's kingdom today. Now, it is the desire of the faculty and, in fact, the entire Master's College staff to instill this heart attitude in you as students through our teaching and through the modeling of our lives. Most, if not all, of the faculty members here at the college have, at some point, made an explicit decision that they would turn down positions that would give them greater opportunity, security, and salary for the choice of being here at the college. Many of our faculty could leave here today and take a job which would pay them twice as much as what they make here. Why are they here? Because they have a heart of purpose knowing that the ministry, this is the ministry that God has called them to. It's our desire to instill that same mindset in each of you, that heart of purpose. Let me summarize as we close. I'd like to challenge each of you students today to examine your own heart, to determine to what extent you have cultivated the heart of a Christian scholar. Do you have a regenerated heart? That is, do you have a knowledgeable Christian worldview that will influence how you respond to information and new issues that come up in the society in which you live?
Do you have a heart for truth? Is your supreme loyalty to the pursuit of truth and to the author of all truth? Do you recognize that the pursuit of truth in your academic classes is honoring to God? Third, do you have the heart of a learner? Do you cultivate in your life a desire, a natural curiosity, and the basic intellectual skills that it needs, that it takes to be a lifelong learner? And then finally, do you have a heart of purpose? Do you understand that the value of scholarly pursuits and excellence in a profession is not for the purpose of personal gain or recognition, but for the purpose of forming a platform, a platform that you can use for a testimony that will point individuals to Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom. That's our desire for you to establish the perspective of a Christian scholar in your life. Let's stand and have a word of closing prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you. You are the author of all truth. You are true. Lord, we pray for your enablement and your help that um, you through your indwelling Holy Spirit would challenge each of the young people here and those of us in faculty and staff to develop in our hearts and cultivate in our hearts that perspective of a Christian scholar. Pray that you would help us to be learners, to prize the truth, to cultivate a Christian worldview and to understand that this privilege that you have given us to be here and be involved in a Christian college education is for the purpose of preparing and equipping us to be used by you in the advancing. We pray, Father, that 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 would be the perspective of each of our hearts and we pursue it with all our might. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.